Let Him Go Barefoot is a podcast that dives into all things parenting and education through the lens of mindful awareness. Conversations aim to bring forward patterns, beliefs, and attitudes that shape our expectations and ideas about what it means to raise healthy children. With the blend of science, ancient wisdom, and intuition, we will explore ways to support, nurture, and connect with our growing children while also nurturing and expanding ourselves. I am grateful you are here. Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 15 of the Let Him Go Barefoot podcast. I'm excited to introduce you to my next guest, Kelly Edwards. Some of you may already be familiar with Kelly's work. She is the creator of the 90-Minute School Day and co-creator of How to Be an Awesome Homeschooler. Kelly is also a mother to three foster adopted girls and is a trauma-informed parent. In this episode, we talk about de-schooling and why it is an important process to go through if you are transitioning to homeschool. We discuss the teachings of Maria Montessori and how those teachings brought her back to herself. We go over the fascinating neuroscience behind the 90-minute school day, as well as the rhythms we naturally go through in a 24-hour cycle and why it's important to be aware of them. We discuss neurodiversity and her love-hate relationship with labels. We talk about the unnecessary battlegrounds that we create in opposition to our children when we think we know what they need to learn. We discuss what being a trauma-informed parent means and why trauma experiences are subjective, and so much more. Here is my wonderful conversation with Kelly Edwards. Hi, Missy. Thank you for having me on this podcast. I am so thrilled to be here. And uh, I'll just start off with saying a few words about who I am, uh, about my family, and about my business. So my name is Kelly Edwards, and I am a wife and a homeschooling mom of three, three girls. Their ages are 14, eight, and four. So they kind of span different segments of like the educational life, if we want to think of it that way. Um, We live in the Shenandoah Valley of West Virginia. And uh, one interesting thing about my family is all of my children are foster adopted. So adoption is kind of what brought us to homeschooling. I never planned to homeschool. Growing up, my best friend was homeschooled, so I had some touch points to homeschooling, but just never really considered it for myself or my future children. Our family came into homeschooling because of adoption. Our oldest was six and in first grade, she'd been through kindergarten in first grade, and that's when we knew we were going to adopt her. And we were starting to look into homeschooling because the public school system was not addressing all of her needs. She was fine academically, but people are more than just intellectuals. They are physical beings, they are intellectual beings, they are emotional beings, and they are spiritual beings. So they're really a whole person, and she wasn't getting her needs met uh, fully in the public education system. So we brought her home. And so the 90-minute school day is my business, and that has been born out of the ash heap of our first couple years of homeschooling. Mm-hmm. And it's really just uh, what the 90-minute school day is, is it's a de-schooling method. And that was this process that brought me away from how we started that wasn't working for us, homeschooling that is, 
and brought us into natural learning where we are just thriving. She is blooming and we are accomplishing our objectives that we wanted when we started homeschooling by being able to build attachment and connection with our daughter. And of course, our subsequent children have just flowed right into the homeschooling. So that's a little bit about me um, personally. And then of course, my business is a de-schooling method that connects children because this method is for the parent. So it connects the children with learning in their natural environment at home with their family. So I'm super Mm. passionate about home education and connecting families through attachment. And all of our children are neurodiverse. So we see that as a gift. Learning is a lifestyle. And I'm just here to help children and parents identify their purpose through home learning. That's wonderful, Kelly. And I came to you, I came to learn about you through the How to Be an Awesome Homeschooler Summit that you and Robin put together. And then, of course, I started learning more about your content and what you are setting out to do to help families. And I love how you mentioned that it's for the parents, because I think a lot of times when parents do decide to homeschool, they think they need to do something to their kid. And they Mm. think, okay, what kind of things can I find on the internet to do to them, to give to them, to make them do their thing, right? I would like that parent. (laughs) I have moments where sometimes I want to reconsider being that parent. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So we, we have this thought process about what it means to be educated and we feel like our job as their parent, as their teacher, as their, the adult who cares and loves them wants to ensure that they have what they need to quote, become educated. And I just love John Taylor Gatto's thought process with that. And it is that we don't take an edge. We don't get an education. We take an education. So it's not something you can do to someone else. So I I love that your, your business is set up to ensure and to support the parents where they, wherever they are on their journey. So can you go into that a little bit more because you mentioned de-schooling. And so I know there's some people who are listening who might not really understand what de-schooling means and where that term came from and kind of how we've, it's, it's become a bit more common in my circles, especially, but I think more and more people are starting to understand that there is an actual process that we have to go through if all we've known is school and then we want to transition out. So if you don't mind spending a few minutes just sort of walking us through what that looks like. Sure, absolutely. And de-schooling is like kind of a new and upcoming homeschool buzzword. That's kind of how I look at it. Um, But it kind of has roots in just like anything, it's the deprogramming of something, you know, that prefix DE means to undo. And so we, when you're working through the process of de-schooling, it's different than unschooling. Sometimes that gets confused. Mm -hmm. But um, because originally John Holt, I think, wanted to call, you know, his philosophy de-schooling, uh, but then he kind of went to unschooling. And so de-schooling is really the, the process of breaking down the mindset around education that we have and we've been given given by society and through our own experience. So I was publicly educated um, And I think most parents are, or even private schools. I did spend some of my educational years in private schools. Uh, That's kind of the classical idea of education. And that's what people want to give their child because it's what is known. And there is nothing inherently wrong with 
public schools or private schools if it's working for your child. But if there is friction, if there are behavioral problems, if there is bullying, if you know your child, if they are not thriving in a school environment, this is when you might want to consider de-schooling. And so that's the deprogramming, taking a step back and challenging societal expectations and then your own beliefs and ask yourself, okay, is there another way? And what does that look like? And of course, there's lots of alternative educational models besides just homeschooling. But that's kind of like the entry point, I would say, to de-schooling. It's kind of this unwiring and, and rethinking about what education can look like. Yeah, and you mentioned too about the intellectual part of our children where in school, it's kind of what we focus on. What is their intellect? What do they know? What can they provide? What knowledge do they have? And yet we're not just intellectual beings. Like you said, we're physical, we're emotional, we're spiritual. And I love on your website that you say an educational environment isn't limited limited to one room and one desk, but is open to the whole house, neighborhood, community, and the world. So how did you get to that place in, in your, your homeschool journey? Um, let me think. Uh, that's such a good quote because it kind of speaks to the journey I referenced earlier. My daughter was in kindergarten and first grade. I had a traditional education. And then when I brought her home, I had done all of my research. I had research curriculums. I had sat down with other homeschooling parents. I had uh, read books, listen to podcasts, attend seminars, and I thought I was ready. However, you know, thinking you're ready and then going into like, you know, engagement of whatever, that's kind of making it sound intense, but, you know, we were engaging in the practice of homeschooling <laughs> and I brought, I brought school home and I brought, I bought a box curriculum. Again, nothing inherently wrong mm-hmm. with the box curriculum if it works for you and your family. However, I had an out-of-the-box child, and I was removing her from the box that was limiting her so that I could pour into her and develop this connection. But then I kind of redid school at home. And so we were having yeah. a lot of yeah. battles over math and reading. Uh, I, and, and, and it was just what you talked about earlier. I was doing this to my children. I was really fixated in second grade that she had beautiful handwriting. That was like one, that was one of the mm-hmm. mountains I had decided to die on. And so, uh, and, and I just, and I just <laughs> didn't know about like how their hands uh, weren't fully developed yet. And that they're, they actually, different children have different needs on how they hold pencils and all these things that I know now. And so information is power. That's just one example. Math was also a battleground, uh, uh, any kind of writing process that was because it was basically putting me into an authority position to judge her, right? Because now this is not enough. You need to fix this part. You didn't understand what I said about this. And so it's this teaching from a top-down approach that was not growing attachment because now she's sitting there from a perspective of, okay, what do I need to do to give her what she wants and comply and, and get her off my back. back. And I'm like, (laughs) I want to get off your back. So just do what I told you to do. And, and it's the, and it's the difference between like a teacher and a parent. And, And it's hard to wear both of those hats. And that's where we were getting a lot of friction and it wasn't all bad. Like we had these really wonderful moments too. Um, and so it was the mm-hmm. de-schooling process for me was starting to shed the things that weren't working. If something started to create friction, I would let that go. And so that's kind of where I arrived. This statement is kind of like my magnum opus, if you will. It's kind of our journey because 
uh, earlier, let's see, so second grade, she and I were like doing our best and we were starting the process, just dropping things like spelling tests. I was giving her spelling tests. And so we, about six months in, I realized this is silly. She's a good speller. She always gets a hundred or an A and I was grading. Um, I can drop this. It's not necessary. So there's some things that you're just learning along the ways, but it wasn't until I put my second child who was two into a Montessori program for three hours once a week uh, and got introduced to Maria Montessori and her work where my de-schooling process really began and just sort of diving into this um, woman's work. It was so revolutionary for her time and how she followed the child and looking at environments to impact learning rather than a top-down approach. Yeah. Well, and I, I don't, I don't know them off the top of my head, but I know she broke learning and in interacting with the world into different developmental blocks. So you had like a three-year time span, three to four-year time span where kids were, she noticed that they seemingly act and interacted with information the same way. Mm -hmm. And then you had a, you know, second block where there would be a transition because it's all related to the development of the kid. It's how their brains are changing. It's how their bodies are changing. And so this idea that we need to put all kids in a classroom setting and treat them the exact same way is like the antithesis of what actually customized education is all about. Um, so when you read some of Maria Montessori, you feel like that was kind of, did that open, so that opened you up from this idea of classroom model specifically to everywhere we go as a classroom? Yes. Yes, it did. And it kind of brought me back to where I, it brought me back to myself because my background growing up I'm a military brat. I traveled and lived overseas with my family. Um, You know, so I kind of joked around when I was a teenager, oh, I'm a nomad. I don't have a hometown. Um, Mm. And that was kind of my worldview. So so this idea of the world is my classroom, uh, you know, the neighborhood, because I moved to different communities. I had to remake friends, brought me kind of back to myself and look allowed me to look back at my own life and what had I really retained from my own education. And it was Mm -hmm. always built around relationships, relationships with the teacher that I remember things that were taught in that classroom. It's because I respected that teacher and felt seen and heard by that teacher. So it wasn't so much about the subject material as the relationship, or it was about the relatedness between my own interests and what was being presented. Like that's, those are my takeaways. Everything else from my school past, and I think for a lot of people, is relatively forgotten. There's like some haze around it, but we all know how to read, write, and understand mathematical concepts. So therefore we can continue to learn on our own and we learn what we need to learn as adults. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. No, I can completely echo your sentiment with what you remember from childhood. And of course, almost everybody we talk to, the same thing. I mean, all of us probably had a point in time in our schooling years where we said, what is the point of this information? Like, <laughs> why do I really need to know this? And of course, the teacher tries to do their best sort of, okay, just just go with it. You know, sometimes they can't actually give you an answer. It's more like, well, it's on the list. Um, and I used to tutor children and felt the same way. I will never forget this little boy I had who he was just so frustrated and he was like, I go to school every day and now I have to come home and you come into my house two days a week and I don't even care about this stuff. And he, he had just lost his love of learning because he'd been so told that he couldn't do things mm. the right way mm-hmm. that nobody was really looking at the beautiful child in front of them who had this amazing creative 
ability, who loved to build things with his hands and, and that just wasn't valued. So I think what I've for sure experienced over the years and I've heard it multiple times and I, and I imagine what, what I hear you maybe went through is that you started pulling back from this idea that all the value is in what you can produce from the academic standpoint and mm-hmm. you expanded your view of the child and the view of education and the view of your own role. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what's actually valuable, you know, the, the memorized facts that I don't really understand in context with where they exist in relatedness, um, that, that, that doesn't matter as much as having the skills to be able to teach myself what I need when I need to teach it and the relationship skills to go to a person who has the expertise mm-hmm. I need and be able to communicate to them effectively and have the relationship skills with which to network or get further information or just get direction from, you know, those are the skills that really uh, are the are, are what I want to le- to empower my children with before they leave my home is to have those skills. Yeah, I mean, those foundational skills are so critical. And even now, I've heard, especially um, these larger corporations, and there's been quite a few articles written on what are the skills that corporations are looking for, and people call them the soft skills, mm-hmm. you know, of how are you able to express yourself? Are you able to problem solve? And and how do you work with people and alone? And so there's a there's a mixture of very important skills that we all need as human beings that do not involve anything related to a book right. or a right. test or a score. Right. And how many people have you met in your grown life who've ever asked you, well, how did you do in high school? Well, what were, what did you what were your grades in college? Right. Nobody does that. And if they did, you'd be like, well, you're kind of a jerk. Like, I don't want to talk about that. Right. And, and what, and what do grades even mean? Like I, I made good grades and I was very academic and I, and I did just fine in a traditional school environment. However, you know, what that environment also does, people always like to talk about socialization with homeschoolers, but you're also being socialized in a school environment and it, and it can get really toxic because it's almost like breeding, mm-hmm. um, competition that's not a healthy competition like healthy competition is one thing but when you're sitting there and in maybe you're an undiagnosed uh, ADHD -er or um, you're dyslexic and you're sitting there and you're frustrated and your self-worth is being devalued to yourself because you know you're smart but every day you show up and you can't do what everyone else is doing and it's this comparison game rather than looking at Mm -hmm. the children as individuals and celebrating their strengths and of course from like a classroom management perspective that's not something that is doable for one adult and 30 children. Uh, so there's just there's just some things. I'm not here to attack public school, but I, I just want to kind of bring some awareness to this, the struggles that that model has, especially in this in where we are as a society and where our mm-hmm. society is heading. It's just a little antiquated. Yeah. Well, and when you were talking about the science of various different things related to learning, like you mentioned the handwriting, I mean, there's science behind why you don't start handwriting at a certain, right. you know, it, until the hand, the, the um, bones in the hand have, have developed a little bit more, you know, there's science to how children learn. It's pretty much unavoidable if anybody wants to read it and look for mm-hmm. it, it's everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, so of course, you know, the classroom model is, has been the way it's been for quite some time. We know it's a normal normalcy in our society, but it doesn't mean it's natural. Right. And so I think that's why the conversations around homeschooling have just, you know, 
blown up because more people are starting to recognize there's a disconnect between what kids really need and what kids are getting. And so this idea of natural learning. And so I want to bring up the science, if we if we can, behind the 90-minute school day. Um, there was a um, Andrew Huberman, which is, he's a neuro, neurologist, wait, neuroscientist. And um, he has a he has his own podcast, the Huberman, I think it's the Huberman podcast. No, that's not Huberman, right. Huberman Lab. Lab. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's it. And he did a reel that I saw recently that made me laugh because the way he was talking about our cycles, um, our circadian rhythm, and then he brought up that humans tend to focus and do things in 90 minute cycles. And he called it the, is it the Ultradian? Yes, Ultradian cycles. Mm-hmm. Ultradian. And you yes, were like, Ultradian oh, cycles. Kelly, what, 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 is, I know. what is going on? Do you know about this? I was like, yeah, girl, I know about that. That's why I'm called the 90-minute school day. I know, I know. I was like, hey, hey, Kelly, this you, this you? You and this Huberman man? Y'all have something going on I didn't know about? So, yeah, so how, so the 90 minutes with the cycle. So what what is that, like the Ultradian cycles that we because I mean, think about it with sleep. I mean, I've studied sleep a ton and that was obviously discussed, like how we go into the deep sleep and then we go into dream sleep and light sleep. And there's just these obvious cycles throughout our night of sleep. And they do tend to look like they're in this 90 minute loop. So um, when it comes to focusing, he was saying that we have this 90 minutes sort of almost at 90 minutes. It's not quite 90 minutes, but it's right there. Mm-hmm. So is that what you saw and, and, understood as well. Yes. And it's kind of something that just, I think it happens. You notice these types of things. So as you're listening to, so for the listener who's listening to you and I dialogue about this, things are going to start to resonate. If you're kind of paying attention to your body, if you pay attention to different things that are are occurring inside of you or how you feel during the day, um, it's going to, this is going to make a lot of sense. So kind of back in the 19. Uh, 50s and 60s, Dr. Franz Hallberg and then Nathaniel Kleitman were kind of the pioneers of biological rhythms or chronobiology. And what those are, the, the, the discoveries that they made have just since kind of taken off. And that's what Andrew Huberman was talking about. They are these biological rhythms that just happen naturally within anything that's alive on earth. So, so everything, mammals, birds, reptiles, humans, butterflies, all have biological rhythms and they're all set by many different things. But the first biological rhythm and the one that most people are familiar with is the circadian rhythm. So that's your sleep-wake cycle. Um, There are nocturnal creatures and there are uh, diurnal creatures. Of course, humans are diurnal. We're awake during the day. We sleep at night. And so that's kind of the circadian cycle. It's a 24-hour period. And they've done these fascinating studies where they've put people or or animals um, in dark for several days with no light to see what happens. And they keep that cycle. So that's kind of where the 90 minutes kind of leaps off from. I'll get there in a minute. But this is uh, because I know people like the science. Um, There is this... um, part of your brain called the suprachiasmatic nucleus. So if you want to remember that, I always remember it like supercalifragilistic. So it's a suprachiasmatic. That's what I was about to say. Yeah, That's what it's a it crazy like. name, <laughs> but it's a suprachiasmatic nucleus and it's kind of on the roof of your mouth um, in your brain with the hypothalamus and your hypothalamus part of your brain. Um, some of the things it does is regulate sleep, emotions, um, manages your hormones. So that suprachiasmatic nucleus is your biological clock. And that, of course, 
is managing your circadian rhythm, but it's also managing your ultradian rhythm and your infradian rhythm. Those are the three I kind of use with my method, the 90-minute school day. Uh, but I think kind of for the point of this conversation today, we'll dig into the ultradian rhythms. And what those simple, simply are is kind of the undulations, if you think of like a wave pattern, that happen within our bodies inside of a 24-hour period. So we have the circadian, that's 24 hours. And then while we are awake, we have between 80 and 120 minutes, depending on the individual, of an active cycle. So we think of kind of a, a bell curve going up into the active focus, and then we come back down into a dip. That dip is 20 minutes, and that is a rest cycle where your body is like, um, repurposing potassium and sodium. They're kind of like defragging the computer. So you need a rest so that everything you've just done in that active cycle can be stored and filed correctly. It's kind of fun to think about that movie um, Pixar did, Inside Out. Have you seen that? Oh, yeah. That's wonderful. Yeah. And you have like little balls, you know, roll down and they get stored and filed and then some are discarded, but then some become core mm -hmm. memories. So that kind of stuff is kind of happening in those 20 minute um, kind of dip, dip parts of the wave pattern. And so that's how we operate through the day. So we wake up and our cortisol kicks in. We kind of wake up with the light and we go up into our first 90 minute cycle and then we dip down into our 20-minute rest, and then we go back up into a 90-minute cycle all day long until it's time for us to go to sleep. And instead of having um, our serotonin kind of keeping us awake, our um, melatonin kicks in for nighttime. And then the, these cycles flip. So it's the same time segments, but instead of 90 minutes of activity, you have 90 minutes of rest. And so those are kind of your non-REM sleep stages. And then you have the, your first one is typically about 10 minutes, but it grows throughout the night. And those dips are now the energetic kind of alert stages. Your body is paralyzed, but your mind is going in REM sleep. Mm -hmm. And so we, we are more familiar with that, I think, um, kind of in the, in, you know, the literature you'd come across daily. But that's what's happening at night. And then again, it flips the next day. The, the longer period of time is your alertness, and then you have those breaks. So that, in a nutshell, is what ultradian rhythms are. Yeah, and it's fascinating because when, as you're talking, all I can think of is how many times I've observed my children do that naturally. They go, they busy, and then they just need to sit and just chill and maybe read a book in the room or go play with their Legos quietly. These are, of course, many years ago. And but I but I'm watching it even now, you know, now they're older and they have their very active periods and then they, you know, go play a sport and come back home and hang out quietly for a little bit. And then they get back up and they're like, we're going to go for a walk. And and so if you just watch and observe our children in their quote natural habitat, <laughs> which would be nature or just allowing them to kind of flow through the day. Now, of course, we have a lot of in inputs from our environment mm -hmm. that probably artificially affect those cycles, yes. would you say? Or yes. so I'm wondering, like, at at what level would you say our modern society is impacting or possibly affecting those cycles unnaturally even? Yes. I guess, would that even be the right way to word it? It's a kind of an unnatural in impact. It is. And, and it mostly, so like what we eat can disrupt our um, ultradian cycles um, and, and our circadian cycles. Uh, you know, just kind of the environment we put our bodies in. But the number one 
kind of disruptor is light. And so mm. if you think about prior to the invention of the electric light and how it kind of rolled out uh, a little over 100 years ago, kind of in modern society, um, where everyone started to get electricity in their house, prior to that, you were just using daylight. And then past uh, daylight hours, if you needed to get some work done, you were using candlelight or firelight or kerosene lamp. Um, so you're using fire. And fire actually has been studied and shown to not disrupt these biological rhythms. However, mm, okay. electric light does and, and like incandescent bulbs disrupt, but they don't, they don't disrupt as much as LED. And what have we been shifting towards, you know? Oh gosh, tell me about <laughs> so, it. So, you know, all is not lost. Um, we can, we can do a better job of rebalancing ourselves with just awareness, which kind of is like, goes to, for life, right? Just being intentional, mm -hmm. be aware. Once you have awareness, you can make change. So what, what I work with my clients on is we do a time audit and I have them, it's just like you would do for a diet where you just really start logging everything down so we can look at it and start noticing your biological patterns. Are they, are they healthy? Are they askew? Are you getting enough sleep? How do you feel? How much light you use uh, that is artificial light past dark? And so we can start to talk about making some shifts. So blue light blockers are great for after the sun goes down. But during the day, you don't necessarily need to have blue light blockers on. Um, but you need to have those kind of once, the sun, once it starts uh, to get close to dusk, you want to start kind of putting on your blue light blockers. You want to limit as best you can your exposure to artificial light. So like one of the things I do is... Um, I try very hard and I, I, I certainly don't stick to this every single day, but I try very hard to put down my devices after dinner and just kind of mm -hmm. plug it into the kitchen. That's a boundary for myself. So that's one less temptation to like ingest this light to disrupt my, my body. Um, and it's also something that I'm modeling for my children. Um, I do watch TV at night on occasion. So it's not like I'm like this purist living by candlelight yeah. once the sun sets, but I'm aware of it, you know, and I'm aware that the next day, if I don't feel as well, hmm, maybe that's because I stayed up too late and I had this extra light. So it's just kind of knowing mm -hmm. this, empowering yourself with tools that you can have the control to adjust. Um, so sunlight, just understanding sunlight. And one of the biggest things you can do for yourself is get out as soon as you wake up and get out and get a few minutes of just daylight. Um, if, oh, yeah. if you sit beside a window, you can get it. You just have to sit there longer than if you just kind of like took a little walk around your block, walk your dog, or just go outside, sit on your front porch with some coffee, even in the mm -hmm. winter time, super helpful for setting a good sleep rhythm. Cause that sunlight and that, um, super chiasmatic part of your brain, it kind of starts kicking everything off. You enter your first ultradian cycle and you can kind of start to optimize things. Yeah. Well, and I'm going to add, you also should be barefoot yes. in the grass. You should, you need to ground. So. <laughs> I 100% agree. That's right. <laughs> no, I, that's, that's my rhythm in the morning. It's just the whole idea of like opening the blinds. It feels so good, you know, when you are awake and I have noticed, I mean, I've, I've done like my own research on myself. I'm like, okay, I'm not going to get up right now. I'm yeah. going to just lay here and I'm going to do my thing and I'm not going to get out of bed. Well, and then what happens is I notice that I just start feeling more sluggish mm -hmm. and just like, not as it's almost like um I get into a, a downward spiral mm -hmm. of well now that I've started this I got to finish it mm -hmm. and then next thing you know it's been an hour now it's an hour and a half <laughs> and I haven't even really walked outside yet and so if you don't do that first thing mm -hmm. 
I think there's another person, Mel Robbins, maybe she has a, like a five, four, three, two, one thing that she does. It's like, just count backwards from five and just do the thing. Don't think about it anymore. Oh, I love and that. so, yeah, because it really does trick your brain into being like, when one hits, we got to do the thing. And so I think it's fascinating to know the science mm -hmm. because we really are being operated yes. with things behind the scene, mm -hmm. you know? We think we're in control of ourselves, <laughs> you know, and, and we forget that there's a lot of stuff happening behind the curtain that that is um, impacting us. And then we also have the ability to impact it. So I love that whole cycle idea because I think it also helps parents possibly step back and observe their kids a little differently. Mm -hmm. Like, well, there's an obvious reason now why he kind of crashes at this sort of point of the day mm -hmm. or Maybe there's a reason why they get a little bit more jacked up before bed because they've actually been on this blue light mm -hmm. stuff for an hour. Yes. And um, and with our family, now that my kids are older, well, and we did it earlier too, but especially now that the, the weather's changing and I we love to do fires out in the backyard. Oh, yes. And I will tell you, the staring at the fire to me is the most therapeutic, mm -hmm. calming. It just feels so much like, what you're supposed to do, <laughs> you know? And, and I notice on those nights when we leave the home, leave, I mean, it's just in the backyard, mm -hmm. go outside. It's completely dark, do a fire, chit chat, talk to each other. I feel so much more relaxed mm -hmm. and I feel like I could just go right to bed yes. and I don't have to worry about winding down. Cause I feel like that was my wind down. Yes. Um, so that's interesting. You said that about the fire too, with the candlelight and how people utilized it, but it didn't impact them the way that our modern society is impacting us. Yeah. So it can just be kind of like a simple thing. Like I'm a big reader and I know you are too. Um, it's easy. It's always easier to turn on the television than pick up a book. But if this is something mm -hmm. that you want to play around with, like light a few candles, sit down in your living room. The other thing is like, if you have um, lights, just you, if you can get a brown uh, filter on them or, or just a lower dim and definitely uh, incandescent over LED and then have them lower in the room. Like you don't want to have overhead lights. That's another yes. kind of thing that can like trigger your rhythms and get them out of sync. So just by making mindful adjustments like that, you don't have to be some sort of, you know, hippie purist here, but you can, you can make <laughs> some small adjustments and you know, it doesn't have to be like, don't get dogmatic about it. Do what you can notice how you feel. And then you can, mm -hmm. you're empowered to make the decisions that you want to do. If you want to stay up all night and like get all the blue light and suffer tomorrow, that's fine. There's all sorts of other things you can do that kind of have that hangover aspect as well. And I'm not here yeah. to tell you what to do. It's just information. <laughs> no, that's true. And I, I mean, that's great information. And I, I think, you know, there are some tiny little modifications that can be made that make everybody feel good in the long run. Um, and, and it's also modeling, like you said earlier about modeling with putting your phone and, and plugging it in and just sitting in and moving or putting it out of sight, out of mind. Yeah. Um, I noticed that happened for years with my own children. Like if I modeled um, thinking a problem through, mm -hmm. like they asked me a question, they needed an answer yet. I wasn't quite sure. So I would say to them, I need to think this through for a few minutes. Let's go over a couple of pros and cons. And so it's that the, the reality is that we, our kids are watching us. They do what we do, not really do what we say. Not all the time. Anyway, you know what yes. I mean? Like they really, they really are watching what, if we're, if we're living up to the words that we use. Mm -hmm. um, but so I think, you know, that's just one other aspect of engaging with our children and interacting with them that requires us to be a bit more conscious about our own decisions, our own behaviors, and what's impacting us so we can help them learn those skills 
too. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. So good. Well, so you mentioned earlier about um, neurodivergent. Can you give us a little bit more, a a deeper dive into what that means? Because that word is used more frequently, I think, these days. And of course, with social media too, people are hearing it more often. So what does that mean? Okay. When someone is neurodivergent. I always like to define terms so that everybody's on the same page. So how, what neurodivergence means or neurodiversity or neurodiverse, all of it means the same thing. It just means to think and learn differently. And so therefore neurotypical is kind of the behavior, behaviors and learning um, and processing that is considered typical. Like everyone is an individual, but if we think of uh, humanity kind of like a bell curve again, Neurotypical people are kind of lumped up in the middle at at the top of that bell curve. And then neurodiverse people are on either side. So they're about, they think about 40% of the population is neurodiverse. So there, it's not like some small segment of society, it's 40%. And then 60% are considered neurotypical. And so that's just how we think and learn, um, so when we, when we are talking about neurodiverse individuals, these are individuals who may have labels such as autism, ADHD, anxiety, dyslexia, dyscalculia, dyscraphia, dyspraxia, um, sensory processing disorder, anxiety, trauma. As I start listing these off, you know, people automatically are like, oh, whoa, my kid is neurodiverse or or maybe they are. I, I've always kind of wondered if they have ADHD, but I just thought, you know, maybe that's not a real thing or who knows. So, the, mm-hmm. so those are some examples. Another thing to note about neurodiverse uh, individuals is there's something else called uh, twice exceptional, or you might hear it called 2E. And that is someone who is neurodiverse. And they are, if you think about, again, that bell curve, there's someone on one side of the bell curve is exceptionally gifted. But then they also have a, a limitation or a learning difference. And so something um, that's pretty common is uh, dyslexia. Dyslexia, obviously, that person is going to be more challenged with reading than a neurotypical person. But dyslexics are often three-dimensional thinkers, and they are just great uh, verbal orators, and, and they're just so gifted intellectually. But they've got, they've mm. got that, you know, someone might term it as a, as a disability, but it's just a difference. And in fact, recently, uh, LinkedIn has put that uh, dyslexia as an asset for people to list because employers are looking for dyslexics for those very reasons. Interesting. Strength. Yeah. It's just fascinating. So that's kind of how, how I would just kind of give an entry point just so we're all on the same page of what neuro, neurodiversity is, um, how, how it can show up in people and different things. And so, you know, where would you like to t- me to take this? Do you want me to talk about it in children and adults learning? Well, my first question is going to be because, well, for anybody that doesn't know, I have a background in special education, and that's the area that I chose because I had worked with children with ADHD in a research study at Duke Medical Center back in back in the early or <laughs> mid nineteen nineties, <1990s. laughs> back in the last millennia. <laughs> <laughs> so that was an area that was new-ish to me. Um, and also becoming much more mainstream conversation. But it was a gigantic research study sponsored by the National Institute of Mental Health. 
and it was organized or run by Dr. Keith Connors, who was the is quoted as the father of ADHD because he had noticed er- earlier kids who were being diagnosed with minimal brain damage. Mm. It wasn't actually brain damage. Mm-hmm. It was just their brains were thinking differently and doing something different. Mm-hmm. And so he ended up creating the whole ADHD Connors rating scale. So when I first learned about ADHD, um, it was more about the fact that the brain was communicating differently yes. than other children. So, but then eventually what I think has happened is over time, the more that we've become aware of the different ways that people operate in the world, the more we've been able to give it sort of a larger label of neurodiverse. But then there's also that question of, well, did we have to give it that label because everybody was looking at the children through that school lens? Mm-hmm. Yes. So I'm, yeah, let's talk I'm about that. Like, let's, let's yeah. So where that. that that's an int- I mean, it just is interesting thought experiment of when we look at because I and I think about with reading because we talk about children being late readers, mm-hmm. but they're not really late. They're just later. Mm-hmm. People call them late because we're looking at it from school lens, which is you have to be able to read independently by age seven, right. six, seven, somewhere around there. And if you're not, well, you're behind, but you're really not behind. If you think about the development of the brain mm-hmm. and the individuals, the customization of each child and their experience and all of those things. So I'm just wondering, like, are there people who technically are labeled something that really they aren't because if they were just given a little bit more time? Mm-hmm to show their strengths and their abilities that they would just, just, you know, just smooth, be smooth sailing from that point forward. Yes. Does that make sense? Yes. It totally makes sense. I want to thank you for asking this question because I, I feel like this is kind of at the crux of the issue. Uh, I have a love hate relationship with labels. So I'll tell you why I love mm-hmm. them. I love them because it gives what, what you're witnessing a name so that you can do your research and you can figure out how best to collaborate with your child instead of trying to coerce your child. So the label is a really critical thing for the parent to start learning about this difference in their child. Okay. That's why I love labels. I love labels for that. It's a great identifier so that we can seek seek understanding. I hate labels because now the child has been labeled and society has a point of view. And it's typically negative when you hear ADHD. Most people think, well, how do we fix you? Well, you know, mm-hmm. I don't know about you, Missy, but I don't want someone looking at me as something to be fixed. I am mm-hmm. who I am and I have inherent value and worth. And so that is the whole problem with, and, and, and we're kind of coming out of that. There's, there is a huge shift in the neurodivergent community to be neurodivergent, uh, neurodiverse affirming rather than pathologizing this. So, mm-hmm. and, aut- and, and even like the language, like ASD is au- autism spectrum disorder. Okay. And then, yeah. and so many of these labels have disorder behind them, kind of like they're on a mental illness spectrum. Well, mm-hmm. um, that, that isn't, that's who they are. Uh, neurodiversity can be environmental, like trauma. Okay. That's environmental. Trauma is environmental. Uh, autism can be just genetic. ADHD can be genetic. So if it's genetic, that person, that's, that is how they are made. 
And so Mm -hmm. they're not something to fix. They're someone to seek to understand and affirm. Where are your strengths? Silicon Valley loves autistic people because they think differently. They can think outside the box. Mm -hmm. They notice patterns because their brain is wired differently. And so that is something that should be like, hey, Johnny, this is amazing. You are such a spatial thinker. And I love how you are noticing patterns rather than being like, that's not how you do that math problem. Come over here and show your work Mm -hmm. because so often they Mm -hmm. need to show their work. Well, neurodiverse people, especially when they're gifted in mathematics, they can get to the same answer repeatedly and they may not even know how they get there, but they can get there. So why does it matter Mm -hmm. if they can repeat it consistently? Why does it matter that they show this, this arbitrary work if they can get, if they're just a computer in their head? And so there's, there's a lot of like education around this and awareness around this, but if you have a child in the school system that has one of these labels, you kind of have to get an IEP or a 504 plan. And depending on, again, the individuals in that particular school and in the administration, uh, you, you're going to have different experiences. Some people have great experiences. Right. I, <laughs> I did not. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. um, and it's very disempowering to the parent when these um, educators and administrators in a negative environment, again, it's not all like this, just depends, uh, they dismiss you as the parent when you're trying to advocate for your child. And the parent, a lot of times kind of just assumes that they know what they're talking about because they're the educator. And so therefore they must know. And it's like, no, 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 no. Your child, you are the expert on. And, and Mm -hmm. you, if, if something doesn't sit right with you, then lean into that and step back and question what's really going on because behavior is communication. And if your kid's not thriving, then start rethinking, you know, what your situation is. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, I've helped some families back um, a long time ago. I would advocate for them at IEP meetings Mm -hmm. and 504 plans. Um, And part of what got me so, I guess, thinking even more or having the idea of homeschooling in the back of my mind without me really realizing it was just how argumentative people became about something that I was coming so I didn't come in as like somebody to argue with them. It was more like to support the parents, make sure they understood the language that was being tossed their way, mm-hmm. to understand sort of the system and how things worked and this the or- order of things. Um, because a lot of times, I mean, and, and you know, we, we know it's true. Teachers are stressed mm-hmm. out. They're overworked. Mm-hmm. They have a, a huge caseload. So when they have these different meetings, especially if a parent's new to this whole idea of needing an IEP meeting or an IEP they don't understand what that means. Right. So they really need somebody to, to walk it out for them and explain it. But sometimes teachers don't have time to do that. So what I was witnessing consistently was just this idea that it's annoying when parents are asking yes. these questions. Yes. And you need, and, and you are making, you are making me take up too much time out of your day, which as the parent, you don't want to overstep yourself. Mm-mm, mm-mm. So it's this, this, what I feel like has happened over the last, you know, 40, probably 50 years is school has gone from being a supportive extension of the home Mm -hmm. to being the primary and the home is secondary. Mm -hmm. And, and I'm, I'm wishing for this conversation we're having and all the conversations I've had before that we start trying to twist that back around and remember that home is where the heart is. Mm-hmm. This is where a child begins and starts and, and learns about themselves and others and the world. And school is supposed to be an addition to it, not the primary. And so I love that we're having this conversation about the neurodiverse population because I feel like that has been 
a group of people who have been misunderstood Mm -hmm. and have not received necessarily the environmental supports that they need, which I would, I would, I'm going to venture to say that with your daughter, that the supports Mm -hmm. that she's receiving now look very differently, different than what she had in school. So how have you kind of modified your environment or what did you do on the earlier days in the earlier days to help her? Um, well, and, and just to kind of give some extra context here, my daughter is academically gifted. Like she shows up and she's going to nail that test. And she's someone who can r- kind of read a room, see what that teacher needs from her, and she'll give the teacher what the teacher's looking for. Mm. But where is the real learning in that? What is my daughter learning? She's learning to comply and conform to authority, which, okay, we can have a kind of a different discussion. That's like a side discussion because some people might be like, well, isn't that what we're sending them to school to learn? You know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's like, well, you know, uh, understanding authority and and working within the bounds of society, I'm 100% on board with, but it needs to be a healthy level of like agreement. Like I am, I am doing this because this is, this is not detrimental to me as a person, but if it you needs are to be a healthy relationship, yeah, if you are, yeah, if you're extinguishing that child's self-worth, you know, unknowingly because they're presenting well, she's masking, she's giving you what she, she needs to be able to survive in this environment mm-hmm. and to survive socially and to survive academically. But where she's suffering is she's not getting the validation of who she is because she's just presented a false self. And so like, that's something that's hard to pick up on. And so when the parent brings that up in a meeting and is immediately dismissed, like, Oh no, no, she's fine. And, and it's kind of like, well, no, she's not. I'm here to tell you. Mm-hmm. Um, and that parents aren't giving more of a voice at the table. Again, I'm speaking to my own personal experience. I know that there are differences in these meetings, but if that's your story, if this is resonating with you, then that's something for you to do some digging into, okay, what could bringing them home look like? Hey, there's no downside. Like you can pull your kid out of school, start learning at home, and then you can change your mind. You have the right to change your mind. You can put your child back in school. She went back to school for fifth grade. <laughs> <laughs> and mm, we brought her okay. back home again. So like, it's not like you can't, you know, t- put them back in school if the home learning experiment that you want to try doesn't work. But why home learning works better is because now you can truly customize the education for the child. That's what the IEP is supposed to do. It's supposed to be individualized education plan. But, you know, how individual can you make a plan when you've got so many kids that you have to cater to and you're strapped yeah. for resources and all of that? So when you bring your child home, you as the parent know and understand your child as well, or perhaps better, depending on the age and maturity level of your child, than they even understand themselves. And no one else cares more about that child growing and thriving than their loving parent. And so being able to bring them home now sets up a different approach that's strengths-based and an acceptance-based. That child knows that they are unconditionally loved, so they don't have the judgment Uh, of not succeeding, of not having this benchmarker that I'm a good student and I have these grades in the competition, you know, pool in a classroom. Mm -hmm. And and then they can go and they they can be celebrated for their interests. If they're quirky and they really like, you know, something that maybe wouldn't be acceptable in school, they can, they can explore those interests at home without the fear of bullying, or they can have like, all of my children are nerdverse. We can have those exceptionally awesome um, meltdowns 
And that child's not going to be disciplined or punished or shamed for it. That child is going to have someone there to help them co-regulate and grow and learn how to better manage those feelings and emotions in the future. Oh, that, that's such a huge piece. Oh my gosh. I, so my son, when he was four, he could have gone to uh, school because his birthday fell in September, early September. So he, you know, would have been a four-year-old turning five really in the first few weeks of, of kindergarten. And my daughter was born just, you know, six months prior. And what I've envisioned, and I know some of this was adult projection of me worrying about him and his safety, but I also knew how intense his, his feelings were about things. Um, and Earlier in our relationship, that's when I started digging so much more into like the brain development and emotional regulation Mm -hmm. and why kids feel the way they do at certain ages and why all of a sudden you have like a a child who couldn't handle not getting the toy first one year and then three years later, they're like laughing about it and handing off everything they have to other people. So you see that you can, you can look back on your own individual history as remembering yourself as a child. I remember as a kid thinking about the older people and why they didn't get upset and cry about certain things. <laughs> I'm like, I want to get there. I don't have to cry about everything. <laughs> but it, it's that idea that the emotional regulation is something that takes a concerted effort and support. And when you're in the situation where everybody wants to keep moving or you're on a schedule, mm. there's not much time set aside to just be. Right. And it's impossible for anyone to just be with 30 kids individually. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you're right. I mean, I can see how your daughter would be like, I know how to do this really well, like mm-hmm. the grading part. So I'm going to suck everything up and just mm-hmm. do that part and then get home. Did mm-hmm. you notice if she, when she came home, would there be meltdowns? Oh, she, oh, she was a total mess. Yeah. She was just yeah. exhausted yeah. because she'd held yeah. it together all day. And you know, right. neurotypical children do this as well to some degree, but like if you're sitting here listening to this podcast and you're wondering like, Hmm, this kind of sounds like my kid, you know, whether your child is neurotypical or neurodiverse behavior is communication. If your child yeah. is um, getting sick a lot or making up excuses not to go to school or, um, you know, they're, they're not, they're not being who you know them to be, who they used to be. All of those are red flags. Something's going on. There might be something socially happening at school. They just might be struggling um, with it. Sometimes it's just a, a personality clash um you know mm-hmm. so so it's maybe you can advocate and work a different system with the school but don't be afraid to look at homeschooling even if you work um even if you're a single parent it can be done there's a lot of um the self-directed learning is just so empowering to be able to bring your child home and allow them to grow in autonomy and to give the tools because we're, we've been talking a lot about neuroscience on this podcast and Mm -hmm. to, to understand the neuroscience behind neurodivergence or just the, an an individual, just like pick one out of a hat. Every single human being operates best when they are regulated. That means they are calm. They feel safe. They feel connected. Essentially that person is regulated because they feel seen, heard and loved. So if you have a child in a school environment that is not feeling any of those things, then they are therefore in a fear of, they are in a state of stress. So that's Mm -hmm. being fear of consequences, um, 
they don't feel safe emotionally. They feel like if they don't do this, no one will like them. They have a fear of failure. Their anxiety is, has gone up significantly since they started school. Um, all of these things show that like that child's in a state of stress. And when your brain is under a state of stress, you actually cannot retain information. You can yeah, spit that- it back out from a survival method, but there's no long-term learning there. Mm-mm, mm-mm. No, it really literally shuts down because it's, it's, it's hyper-focused on the thing that it needs to get away from. Right. And they want to get away from that duress and that stress. You know, I thought about the word clung. Mm. So I said something about, you know, my babies mm-hmm. clinging to mm-hmm. moms or they, they clung to you. And I really started thinking about that word. The word lung is in the word clung. And I was like, oh my gosh, I like, I'm literally breathing for my mm-hmm. children sometimes. When they're so worked up, when they're, you know, from infancy to toddlerhood to to, to three, four-year-olds, when they're really overwhelmed and emotions are high and you have to Mm -hmm. hold them and you start breathing slowly, Mm -hmm. trying to take a deep breath and relaxing and they, they start picking up on the Mm -hmm. rhythm and they, you know, I mean, all of us can probably immediately think of an image of a kid doing the, like the double breathing, like, (laughs) you know, when they're really upset. (laughs) Yeah. And so when you hold them and you pull them close and you you know, you tell them it's going to be okay. I hear you. I'm with you. And let's just take a deep breath and you can slow the body down and relax. And I was like, God, that's Mm -hmm. so true. Like we literally have to be their external breathing mechanism. And when children are learning about themselves, their bodies and understanding and, 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 um, trying to figure out the emotional world, it is so important for those around them that care about them to be aware of Mm -hmm. that as well and to be able to support them Mm -hmm. through it. Yes. And as you're talking, I love your clung and then lung and it's external um, breathing that kind of, it's that co-regulation, right? Mm -hmm. But it's also, you know, sometimes it's so helpful as parents to be taken back to a stage that you've, you know, I don't know that we ever master parenting, but it's Mm -hmm. it's a stage you've moved through. And so using that as a metaphor to where you are now and you're struggling can be really helpful and powerful. So, you know, we're kind of talking school-age children in this conversation, but let's go back to when we have a newborn. And I'm an adoptive mom. I'm a foster mom, too. So when I get the call for a newborn baby, the very first thing I do is uh, skin on skin, strap that baby Mm. to me, and I just wear that baby because that baby has just suffered a great loss. Oh, gosh. That child has been removed from the biological mother for whatever reason, and, and it is critical for their development to be forming attachment. And so in lieu of the biological mother, the foster mother needs to get in there or, or, or father, just, just a person, a human being, and get that skin on skin connection because Gosh, yeah. like n- newborn babies, their nervous system isn't fully developed yet. It's kind of that fourth trimester and, yep. and we are their emotional skin. So whenever they're upset, if we can just get skin on skin contact, it normally abates that, that child's, um, Stress response, really. Um, Stress response, you know, in addition to feeding and diaper changing, obviously, but just kind of holding them and getting Mm -hmm. that good contact. And then if something else is going on, then then you can be like, like um, with one of my foster children, he he needed extra pressure. He had he had been drug affected, and so I remember like and talk about having your infradian rhythm. I mean, your ultradian rhythms really messed up. Yeah, Um, you know, he wouldn't sleep longer than twenty minutes at a time. And I just remember one night just being just 
you know, like, I don't know what else to do. And my husband was out of town and I'm, I'm holding him. And then I just was patting him on the back and my pats got firmer out of frustration. It it wasn't, it wasn't anything, you know, dangerous, but they were firmer and he settled immediately. Wow. So just elevating the pressure uh-huh. Um, regulated his nervous system. So right yeah. there, that night was like this moment. It's kind of like that Helen Keller moment, you know, when Annie Sullivan is like putting mm-hmm. her hand under the water and spelling W-A-T-E-R. I don't know if yeah. you're a yeah. fan of the miracle worker. <laughs> but it was like, that was my moment where I was like, oh my gosh. Yeah. Uh, the next morning I'm like on the phone to birth to three, like help, I need I need therapy. I need, you know, occupational therapy. I need physical therapy. I need all these therapies that I had been trained to look for. But it was like in that moment, I had the awareness and now I can in- enact the change process. Mm. And so the same thing in, in our, our school age children, like we were just saying, we need to look to co-regulate. And oftentimes just because of the way schools are structured, your child doesn't have the time and space to have to even regulate if there was someone willing to co-regulate with them, like the teacher. And the teacher also has, you know, 20 other students, 25 other students, and they have an agenda that they've got to get through so that she can meet her metrics or he can meet his metrics. You know, when we think about what what the education system puts on educators as far as yeah. outcomes, and yeah. they're, they're restricted themselves. They can't necessarily teach the way that they would like to and that they think is is necessary for the children in their classroom. So anyways, I kind of went like 5,000 different ways on that, but (laughs) wonderful. It's so important. I mean, it really is. It's, it's the foundation of being a human being. And we, Mm -hmm. if we, if we skip that part, it's to all of our detriment and academics are wonderful and people who love to learn and read and just dig into all the juicy bits of research and things like that. Of course we want you to do that. We go for it. Mm-hmm. but we have to understand how our bodies work and operate and what it means to be a human being and mm-hmm. what our emotions are telling us. And like you said earlier, behavior is information. And mm-hmm. I've, that's something I've impressed upon people forever is that it's a red flag. Your beha- behavior is not, it's, it's a signal. It's something yes. is off. And so, especially like you said, when you know your kid and you see mm-hmm. something happening differently, then mm-hmm it's an, an option for an opportunity for you to, to say, wait, something else is behind this. Let's dig a little deeper. And the hard part with younger kids is they don't have the language a lot of times no. to express how they're feeling. They just know things are off. They know mm-hmm. they feel some way, but mm-hmm. the wording is just not there. So that's our job to help us help them peel back those layers mm-hmm. a bit more. Um, if it's okay with you, let's just jump into like the trauma informed piece of what you've shared earlier when you we're talking about your children. Um, so what does trauma informed mean? And I know trauma has been used a lot in the last five, six years, maybe, maybe a little further than that, but, but most people think of trauma in terms of like a physical assault on their body of some sort, whether Mm -hmm. it's a traumatic car accident, um, a traumatic fall, something Mm -hmm. where there's an external impact to the body that's caused damage to an organ or skin or bones. But Mm -hmm. we're talking about trauma as is, as it relates to our emotional regulation and our identity and what I, I love how Dr. Gabor Mate speaks about trauma is it's not what happened to you. It's what happened mm-hmm. inside of you. Yes. Cause when it's the thing happened. Yes. Mm-hmm. So that's the thing that's so fascinating about families because you see one child can handle a parent mm-hmm. who's a little bit more like rough around the edges Mm-hmm. doesn't bother them. The next mm-hmm. child comes along. Oh my gosh. It really mm-hmm. j- 
just does not work. And the parent is confused because they're like, what? This is what I did with the other one. Then why is yes. this one all upset and worried? And blah? So th- that's that's why I think it's fascinating to talk about it because it's so individualized. You can't just say a blanket thing. Like if you do this, everybody's going to be traumatized. Mm-hmm. So so what does that mean to be trauma-informed? Such a good question, Missy. Um, so to be trauma-informed means that you have – worked through a, you, you understand what trauma is. And so let me back up and talk about that. So what trauma is, and you just touched on it nicely. And so I'll just kind of rephrase it in a different way. Um, cause sometimes that's helpful, but trauma is something that happens to you that has caused, um, you to not feel safe and it's subjective. So, so Missy, you and I could be in a car accident together. We can experience the exact same thing. And let's just for this uh, example, we have the same injuries. I mean, it's just identical. And we can both walk out of that with different levels of trauma. And that's, that's partly because we are individuals. And that's partly because of our range of experience behind that trauma that might also kind of influence it. There's so much that goes into it. And science is just, you know, psychologists and neuroscientists, they're kind of digging into this and we're learning more and more all the time, but that's essentially what trauma is. And so it's, it's, if you, have understood something as trauma, it's not for someone else to say that it's trauma or not. It, that's, that's for you to decide. And we all have different traumas and we can, um, well, I, I was going to go into ACEs scores and that's adverse childhood experiences. Oh, yeah. but maybe mm-hmm. we, maybe that's a little bit too much. So, um, a, a different topic for a different time, but all of us have had, um, trauma is another way that you can break up trauma to tr- just try to help identify it is call it like little T trauma or big T trauma. But That's also nuanced because what someone experienced as like a little T trauma, like a car accident and someone who's had like, you know, they're a survivor of physical or sexual abuse and that's a big T trauma, you know, those are kind of very clear cut. But sometimes if you've had the same traumas repeated, small T traumas repeated over a long period of time, it can present as a big T trauma. Mm -hmm. So it's all very nuanced. It's all very subjective. We've all experienced trauma. And one thing parenting does, I think every parent understands, is it stirs stuff up in you that you didn't know you needed to work through and resolve. Oh, yes. <laughs> I mean, like, that is why parenting is great work, because mm-hmm. we, we cannot help our children through trauma if we ourselves haven't worked through trauma, our own trauma. So being trauma-informed is kind of having an understanding of trauma, doing some deep work yourself, and then being trained. So I'm a certified foster parent. So we have to go through trauma training um, every so often. And then we have reoccurring certification hours that we have to have, which are largely uh, trauma-related because of the circumstances that, that children come into care. Educators are, that's becoming something that they're pushing into, but just because someone is an educator does not mean they're trauma informed. And that again is a problem that we have in our school systems is these are wonderful human beings who are educating our children, but they don't understand trauma and perhaps they haven't worked through their own trauma or they're in process. And our child might be the one that's triggering them or triggering another child in the room. And, and triggers are just that, and they can be experienced. So for my children, they can, when children, foster children come into our home, they don't really know what trauma is. And so you have to kind of be looking out for when they're re-experiencing something, if they're looking like they're detached and they're just not present, um, if they're having a strong behavioral reaction. It's called reactive attachment disorder, um, which most kids who've been through the foster care system have. 
um, or even children who've been adopted at birth. It's that disruption of attachment. Mm. And so it'll manifest in different ways. And that's a trauma. And so we want to be trauma-informed as just fellow human beings on the planet because it helps us understand ourselves and then it helps us understand others. And it can really be powerful to encounter someone and recognize their trauma, even if they don't recognize it, because again, it's like an entry point to be able to work alongside them rather than why are you like this? Oh my gosh. Mm -hmm. You know, and thinking about what they're doing to you rather Mm -hmm. than this person is struggling right now. And I have the wherewithal to understand not, I don't need to know the details, but I can understand that they need some compassion and how can I collaborate with them? Yeah. Yeah. Or at this point, let's leave it alone, give Mm -hmm. them some space Space, or even ask them, you know, especially if they're old enough, say, I understand it appears at this point that you're, you might not be into this activity at the moment Mm -hmm. or that maybe you just need a little time to just kind of relax. Is that, is that true? You know, and if they say yes, that you could do that or, um, I, I have found, especially with the younger kids that sometimes they just need to be heard and seen. Like you said mm-hmm. earlier, like that's, our, that's just our basic human needs. We just need to be mm-hmm. seen and heard, know that somebody actually sees us who, for who we are, loves yep. us. And then when, when our littles are really overworked and, and upset, and if we just stop what we're doing and really hear them and see them, usually they just, they just melt into mm-hmm. your arms. And yep. it's like, Oh, I can rest in this situation. I can relax. I can come out of my reptilian brain of survival and feeling like I got to get away, you know, and it's just like, Mm -hmm. you can just be in that moment more and then they can kind of retool and kind of move forward. And I guess what I would like to highlight with the trauma informed information is that there is, there is being informed and then there's being um, able to respond to it. Mm-hmm. And I know from what I've witnessed and experienced in the world that there are, especially with the, when you become a parent, what I was thinking about today, as a matter of fact, before this conversation, I was in the car for about an hour or so. And I had been listening to a podcast that was discussing the fact that we are, people are not having children as often as mm. we have in, in many years past. And just as we're talking, all of a sudden it kind of like hit me. I was like, I wonder if it's because parenting brings out so much stuff that we Mm -hmm. can work on and we can, we can see it more clearly and our children help us. So they're mirrors to us. They they bring Mm -hmm. things out. And I just wonder if there's a lot of people who are too afraid to see that who are maybe, I don't know if this is really an answer. You know, our, our society is so sped up that, and, and we are, as a culture, and, and we're speaking here as Americans, but as, as a culture, Western society in general, we are so sped up with the pace of life. And then we, then we keep lobbing more stuff onto our schedule. And so we're mm. just constantly not present. We wake up in the morning and if our kids are in school, we're getting ourselves ready. We're getting lunches made. We're yelling at them to get out the door. We get them to school. We run to the office. We sit down. We go through our meetings. We have a lunch break or we don't have a lunch break because we're trying to get out early. We don't get out early because so-and-so scheduled a late meeting and we're grumpy. We head home. Our kids have been in aftercare or they're in activities. We eat dinner on the road or a late dinner and sit down. And now we have to do homework with them and get them washed. And then we do it all over again, rinse and repeat. And then on the weekends, we've got soccer games and we've got, you know, we want to go see so-and-so and there's this great opportunity here and there. And then it's the next week. 
and there's no really time of of rest and mm. and thinking and and true intimacy and you know I just kind of use, I'm using hyperbole here to kind of like over exaggerate my mm-hmm. point but mm-hmm. but you know we all struggle with that I, I'm very intentional and I and I'm very um, big on margin and I find myself constantly having to beat back the tides of over schedule yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, it's, it's just something that it, it kind of encroaches. It's like, you know, it's like stuffed animals. They just, you don't know where they all come from. <laughs> just like, get away. <laughs> where oh, are God. these coming from? Are they breeding? Yeah, um, they are. They absolutely are. <laughs> yeah. And so I think, I think there's a lot of that too, which, which is important to just recognize because again, awareness is where we can kind of like sit with awareness and then we can make decisions. But if we're not aware, then we're just constantly frustrated and upset because we don't understand what's happening. Right, right. And we, and we, we also have been sold this idea that if we do it this way, everything's going to be okay. Yes. You know, yes. so we, we're kind of, we're kind of <laughs> mad. We're like, who can we sue for false advertisement? Because this is just <laughs> not true. Um, well, you know, I wanted to bring up your reels because I just love your reels. They're so pretty Aww, and, and the music you use and the way you make them. It just, they're very, they're, they're lovely. Um, and one in particular, I wanted to highlight because I think this is where, you know, like the foundational ideas about parenting and mind, uh, the mindset shift about what learning looks like and how we can establish our home to be a place where kids can thrive. And it usually starts kind of around the preschool age when kids are really starting to reach for Mm -hmm. the puzzle or wanting to hear the book or, you know, Mm -hmm. building with blocks. And as parents, maybe we start thinking, oh, okay, they're starting to show this ability to Mm -hmm. interact with the world. Maybe now is my time to start introducing skills or teaching them these, the Mm -hmm. alphabet or whatever it may be. And so you had this real, um, and one of the things that you said in your caption was, that she led and then she invited me. I followed the child and stopped to accept the invitation. And I think that 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 blends beautifully into what you were just saying about the busyness of life and how we just keep going, 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 and we don't take a time, take time to just pause and be and be still mm-hmm. and be in the moment. So how how does that look for you in your home or how has that looked for you in your home over the years when it comes to preschooler age? and how that kind of rolled into the way you are now. Great question. And and just for the listener, this is a reel that kind of the the question that I was answering in the reel was like, does my preschooler need formal lessons? And it's this whole concept of kindergarten readiness. Like who Mm. even knew that was a thing 20, 30 years ago? We just keep moving the benchmark younger as if that's going to somehow increase our test scores. And, and it's not, it's actually working in the opposite direction. Children learn best through play. Mm-hmm. When they're playing, they're, they're in control. They're able to exercise their own self-control. They're able to grow in autonomy. They're working collaboratively instead of like a toxic competitiveness with other children. Um, they're able to, to choose. They're able to make up rules. There's so much critical thinking involved with free play, which is what preschool used to be. I mean, that's how I remember my own preschool experience. I don't remember any formal lessons. It was just this great environment of exploration. And so kind of to answer your question, I, I, I would say that this mindset needs to shift back to natural learning, back to how we're engineered as human beings. 
away from teaching these sweet little three and four year olds who are just not cognitively as, 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 as a rule, ready to start learning to read and do math skills, and they will, but we're going to exhaust them and their sense of self by trying to push it early. And so, um, and even in the homeschooling circles, like this is really becoming like something that I'm noticing, like, mm-hmm. what do I need to do for my preschooler? And I'm like, nothing, like yeah. <laughs> just, just, just mom. So in this reel, my daughter is playing with foam letters that you, you know, they make like a mat on the floor and they have the ABCs. So she was already playing with them and she invited me to come play with her. So part of what I love about being a homeschooling parent is I have the time because I'm in charge of my schedule, not the school system. I have the time and I have made intentions on my own to when my children ask me to join them, if I am at all available, I will say yes. And sometimes I'm like, yes, I will join you. I can only do it for a few minutes though, because I am on my way over to a meeting or, or something, you know, Mm -hmm. I'm not going to, you know, inconvenience the normal schedule of my day because they asked me to play. But if I can acknowledge it in a few minutes, otherwise I'll set up a time with them and be like, I can't do it right now. I love what you're doing. It's so interesting what, what you're creating with these letters. Why don't we do it after quiet time? And for preschoolers, you don't give them like a time, like at 4 PM or someone who's not telling time yet. You just tell them in the rhythm of your day. It's going to be after lunch. How about after this? What about Mm -hmm. tomorrow morning before, you know, we go out for our morning walk? And um, so it's kind of just answering that call when your child invites you or if your child asks you to read to them, like to the best of your ability, read a few pages, Mm -hmm. a board book or a picture book, take between two and five minutes. Usually a longer picture book is no more than 10 minutes. And so we have that time, but we kind of get exhausted and stuck in our own egos and our own to-do lists when we're asked to read a book. And I mean, I fall prey to that also, but Mm -hmm. it's, it's, I have this intention of like, if I'm asked to read a book, I'm going to do my very best to read the book, or I will tell the child when I'm going to read. So it's kind of that shift. Yeah. Well, and I, I want to echo that. What, What is true, I believe with our children, when, when you think about them developmentally, it's when they ask you, especially when they're in preschool age, their mm-hmm. attention span is not very long, yes. you know, so <laughs> they true. are in the moment, like mm-hmm. nobody's business. And so in the moment right now, this is what they want to do. But if you, if you can do it, do it. Great. If, if you can't, there's a very big chance they're not even going to be interested in it two hours down the road. Right. Um, mm-hmm. So it does depend on their age, their specific interest. What is, what exactly is happening at the moment? Um, and then the other thing, when it goes to the older kids also being available to them, even when you don't think they want you to be available to them, sometimes Mm -hmm. just not having anything scheduled or just being around our teenagers Mm -hmm. is enough because if you do seem receptive and open to them, then they're going to come and talk to you about either what they're doing, where they're going, who they're talking to, Mm -hmm. um, and maybe throw out some ideas. And then you're really developing a relationship with them. And what I've believe to be the case is that if you're not available when they're younger, they're going to find somebody to be available yes, for them when they're yes, older. Yes, yes, And you know how that goes, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> if you're not available, well, you know, and this is not at all about shaming or mm-hmm. blaming. It's about recognition. And mm-hmm. the reality is that when our kids need us and we're around and available, they'll continue to realize that that's a place that I can depend on. That's a situation I can depend on. And so I, I love how you reframed it to do they need formal lessons? It's more the opposite. Do they just need mm-hmm. you to be there and to be present? Uh, yes. And there's another shift, Missy, I want to kind of bring to people's attention while we're kind of on this topic is also how do you look at children? 
um, do you look at children as a lump of clay to be molded mm. or do you look at children as a seed to be planted and cultivated mm. because mm-hmm. a lump of clay has no inherent um, identity or like um, there there's inert potential, right? That the, the yeah. sculptor can make it into whatever the sculptor wants to make where I, you know, I kind of argue against that, that lens of looking at children, but, I, but it's very popular. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to mold this child into this great, you know, whatever, um, or are we looking at this child as a seed? And it kind of goes back to that Emerson quote that I'm going to butcher, but you know, an inside of an acorn is like a forest. And so inside of one seed is everything that that plant needs to come into being a full adult outside of soil, air, and water. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if we can create an environment for our children and trust that they are a seed with unlimited potential within themselves. And our job is just to make sure that they get air and sunlight and soil and water. Then that child is going to grow up just like a seed does into a healthy, thriving plant with deep roots. Mm. And that is kind of what learning and the natural learning, that's what it is. It's allowing the child to direct. And so like that day, my child, she's very interested in words. She's, um, we think that she's on the spectrum. We're getting, she's in the process of being evaluated. And so that's one way that she's, you know, perseverating is like with words and language, she's like off the charts, unusually so in that realm. And so right now that's what she wants to do. I'm not, I'm not pushing um, decoding. I'm not pushing letters. I'm not pushing writing, but that's where her interests are. And I will meet her there and I'll support her with repetition. Maria Montessori was very big about like a precarious environment. And if you notice your child working on something, you just give them other ways to do it. And other ways you just kind of like show them and then uh, without expectation, like here, you know, watch me do this. And then if they want to do it that way, or if they want to do it a different way, it's just Mm -hmm. giving them more opportunity to, to practice on a skill that you've observed in them that is worthy. Like what the child finds worthy is worthy. Yeah. That's that whole piece of, uh, you know, they are the curriculum. They're going to tell you what they like and what they want to do and how they want to pursue the information. And, um, and I like how you said, you know, if you notice it, offer other ways because Mm -hmm. that's being seen again. It's like, I see Mm -hmm. you playing with those letters over there. Would -hmm. you like to play them this way in a block? I mean, in a, in a puzzle format, would you like to Mm -hmm. write them in this book? Um, Mm -hmm. Not to say they have to, but now they have different opportunities to to play around with what it is they're already interested in. Oh, I love that. Well, Kelly, I think we could talk for another hour and a half. Um, (laughs) We could. (laughs) You have so much knowledge, so much interesting, interesting insight and, and your backstory is, is really beautiful. Um, And so I, I would like, you know, what, what would be like a, a take home message, a wrap up. It's kind of hard to wrap all of this into a bow. <laughs> These are all so many different packages that we brought, brought to the conversation today, but what would be maybe, I don't know, you know, you can do a favorite book, favorite books or podcasts or quote, or just a thought for people to leave, leave this conversation with. Um, okay. I always tell people and myself, myself first less is more like drill it into your head less 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 is more so when you feel overwhelmed just cut in half cut in half again cut in half again Mm. ditch ditch the drainers if it's draining you you don't need it if it's draining your kid rethink it Um, so less is more and then it's all about relationships if you don't have a healthy relationship with your child your spouse your friend 
that is the priority over the soccer schedule. That is the priority over the school system. That is the priority over the homeschool bus curriculum, whatever it is. Um, so prioritize relationships. And then uh, laughter is good medicine. Like mm-hmm. I have this I have this sticky note that's been over my coffee maker for maybe 13 years. And it's an Irish <laughs> proverb. I have lots of sticky notes. I have like four <laughs> or five. But this one's been there the longest. And it's like a good laugh and a long sleep are the two best cures for anything. And mm. it's really true. Like sleep, <sighs> laugh. If you're not doing that, you need to like rescale your life um, and, and look for what you can do. So I'd leave that with my parting parting words. And um, for books, I I am very big on three educational philosophers. That's kind of where the 90-minute school day, along with all this neuroscience and trauma-informed parenting that I have experience in, has come from Maria Montessori, Charlotte Mason, and John Holt, like mm. the intersections I found reading their um, methodology and, and philosophies. And so my favorite, I'll just share my favorite books that I've read for each of those educational philosophers. Um, so starting with John Holt, How Children Learn, is such a classic. Oh, it is, um, yeah. So if you're kind of interested in self-directed learning, unschooling, um, read that one. For Charlotte Mason, um, <laughs> my For the Children's Sake is so marked up, uh, you can barely read it. <laughs> um, so that, that book is For the Children's Sake, and that's written by uh, Su- Susan Schaefer Macaulay. And then for Montessori, um, this was rec- this book was recommended to me by my daughter's Montessori teacher, who was doing Montessori for over like thirty years, and it's um, it's a little bit more archaic in its um, speech, but it's very, very, very good. And it's called Montessori: A Modern Approach, and it's written by Paula Polk Lillard, and she did modernize it more than like if you actually read a book written by Maria Montessori. So, well, when you say modernized approach, do you, do you know when that was written? I believe it was written in, I got it in front of me. Uh, I believe it was written in the seventies. Let's see. Uh, 1972. Okay. Yeah. Well, so, so she's still kind of like talking in a different, from a different era, but it's, I mean, it's timeless. Montessori's work is timeless and, and people often get caught up with like dogma with Montessori, with Charlotte Mason. Mm. Um, you know, we could even go into that with John Holt. It, it, it kind of, I always go to the heart behind the issue. Like, what is their message? What is what is their main points? And they they have this beautiful overlapping that I see when I study any of um, those three individuals and and what they left behind. Yeah. Well, and when that's, when I asked you about the timing, I, I wanted to call that out because it was modern then. And it still applies. It's not that it's like some brand new idea. What we're talking about right now has been talked about and talked about and talked about. So Mm -hmm. we want to keep talking about it so that it becomes a bit more known all over. (laughs) Right. So thank you very, very much. And I appreciate your time. Oh, thank you for having me, Missy. This has been such a delight and a pleasure to spend part of my um, late morning with you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, I encourage you to check out episode 11, which is a conversation I had with my college advisor and developmental psychologist, Dr. Lynn Baker Ward on the science of children's memory. In addition, episodes 12 and 13 are a two-part conversation that I had with Cindy Gaddis, who is the author of the book, The Right Side of Normal. In these episodes, Cindy and I talk extensively about brain dominance, including what right brain dominant learners need, how they show up in the world, and how we can support and understand them. 
I encourage you to share episodes with your friends or family, and I would love it if you could leave a review or comment to let us know what you've learned, how these conversations have impacted your thoughts about parenting or education, and if you've been inspired to shift your mindset from powering over children to empowering them. As always, stay curious, stay connected, and stay aware. Until next time.